Okay, today is February 5th, 2023. My name is Jonathan Hager, and this is uh, my Coming to the Path talk. So Truman first approached me to give this talk the year before the pandemic. <laughs> the before times. And uh, I was in the midst of a suicidal depression at that point. I didn't think it was a good time to give the talk. <laughs> More on that later. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I said no. And then he approached me this past fall and I said yes. And then I got COVID. And some of you may have seen I was scheduled for the talk a few a couple months ago and wasn't wasn't over COVID yet. So it got canceled again. But Truman persisted. <laughs> Despite all the signs of the universe telling him I shouldn't give this talk, here I am. So um, when I was thinking about coming to the path, uh, for me, the, uh, the, the title of my talk is a little bit more coming to the path and uh, staying on the path. Um, so I'm going to talk not just about how I, how I got here, because it's a relatively short story, um, but a little bit about my time here, uh, my struggles with the practice, uh, my wanting to leave the practice, not leaving the practice. Uh, so yeah, some of that stuff. Um, I know the the uh, the in thing on college campuses these days is, is is trigger warnings on books and lectures. So here's my here's my my trigger warning. There's going to be a lot of talk about anxiety depression, cancer, suicidal thoughts, the death of a young baby. I'll probably cry. I might need a hug at the end. But it's also going to be a talk uh, not just about all those struggles, but about resilience and hope, courage, and healing, a lot of healing. I hope I don't babble too much. I, uh, my, my personality tendency is to plan, plan, plan. I, I especially noticed this in the last machine that I, how much I, I, I pre-rehearse conversations that I'm gonna have with people. I doubt I'm the only one that does that. So in an effort uh, not to go down that rabbit hole, I didn't plan this talk too carefully. So we'll see what happens. So we'll start at the beginning. Um, my birth was a little traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was an emergency C-section because the cord was wrapped around my neck. Um, and... Uh, you know, as, as, as I've spent the last 10 years, you know, staring at a wall, uh, investigating myself and, you know, wondering, why do I have so much anxiety? It kind of came to me like, well, maybe because I almost died when I was a baby that that imprinted on me in a way. Who knows? And then uh, I listened to Desiree's talk recently as for inspiration for mine. And uh, she, she talked about how she talked with her parents before her. So I, I called up my parents and said, what was I like as a kid? And let's talk a little bit more. And my mother also told me that she thought I, I was a, a, a near SIDS death. She, she's convinced. She, she walked into my crib one time, and I, I didn't know the story until two days ago. 
that she walked into my crib one time and I was limp, flaccid, and not responsive. And she's she's convinced if she hadn't been there at that moment that uh, that I might not be here giving this talk. So I don't know. Those are just curiosities in my brain. But um, I asked my mom and dad, you know, to give kind of one word of their their memory of me as a you know youngish child under five ten and. And they said, easy going. And I said, do you have the right kid? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting how our, our parents' perceptions and our own perceptions uh, can be so different. I, th- I think they felt that I was easy going because I was obedient. Um, and that's another, th- that's another theme that's going to come up during my talk and my Zen practice. Um, I, was, I was always uh, the, good, the good kid. I wasn't in trouble. I wasn't rebellious. My my uh, my big moment of rebellion, if you can call it that, in high school was uh, my parents were out of town for the weekend, and you know, left their teenage college kid or teenage high school kid home alone, which is never a good thing to do. But and I we had a we had a the classic deadhead uh, Volkswagen camper. Um, this was back in the early 80s and uh, and my rebellion was was getting as many friends as we could packed into that camper with a keg of beer <laughs> driving around the suburbs of Cincinnati from party to party I can only imagine if I had gotten pulled over I wasn't drinking but uh, still <laughs> to, 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 to 10, 10 under 21 year olds in a car with a keg is not a, not a good thing but that was that was the extent of my rebellion um, I was very anxious. Um, I had a lot of social phobia. Still do. This talk is <laughs> not easy for me. Um, we moved around a lot. Uh, I, I lived in Baltimore until I was about seven or eight, and we moved to Florida. And I was there until through freshman year of high school, so I had to move again in the middle of high school, which is also not fun. Uh, you know, losing friends, trying to make new friends, especially if you're anxious and socially phobic, those kind of changes are are not fun. And so I was in, in Cincinnati for just three years for high school, and I went off to college um, in Philadelphia. Um, I uh, was a high achiever. Um, like I said, I was obedient. I got good grades. I didn't get in trouble, never got in trouble. Part of that was the fact that my father was the assistant principal at our school, so that was another kind of awkward thing, being the kid of uh, of the assistant principal, and when he moved schools, just he was a regular teacher, and so it was always, I avoided him like the plague, I managed never to take classes from him, my sister took classes from him, but I didn't. Uh, so yeah, the rest of... Um, you know, my upbringing was pretty unremarkable. I mean, it was we had a middle-class upbringing. My dad was a teacher. My mom's a nurse. Um, you know, we didn't have lots of money, but we had enough. We had some driving around vacations. I never got on a plane until uh, the end of high school. But yeah, seemingly other than uh, other than that cord wrapped around my neck as a baby, no no major traumas that I was ever aware of. Um, and yet there was always this anxiety and social phobia. Um, 
And low self-esteem uh, was a huge part of all of this. And I'm sure that was a driver for the studying and the good grades and trying to, trying to please people, you know, being a people pleaser. And this would persist for a long time. Um, off to medical school, again, high achiever in medical school, didn't help, low, low self-esteem still there. My uh, religious upbringing was Episcopalian. So my father is Episcopalian, my mother is Catholic. Some people see only a slight difference between those. Um, mother really a lapsed Catholic, didn't she was pretty anti-religion. Uh, she spent some time with the Unitarians, so maybe that was a big influence on me. I remember going there as well. I would go sometimes with my mother to the Unitarian Church and sometimes with my father to the Episcopal Church. I had sort of a mixed feeling about church uh, growing up. You know, most 12 and 13-year-olds don't really want to be in church. Um, but I did like the, the aura, the ambiance. Uh, my father, still to this day, sort of gets into some old man rants about modern churches, and he loves the old classic, classic cathedrals, and, and I do too. You know, I still... Still walk into, uh, you know, now having been to Europe uh, and been to some amazing cathedrals, you know, I walk into these places and I have a, I just have a feeling of, of awe uh, and safety and comfort. Um, but yeah, but I was bored in church a lot. Um, but I was an altar boy until middle school in the choir, but then high school kind of dropped off. And that's when, you know, the doubts about God uh, you know, which many people here have gone through, uh, started, you know, filtering in that things just didn't make sense to me. Um, the suffering just didn't make sense. I couldn't, I, I couldn't accept the explanations that I was given in church. Um, so, I, you know, I, I faded away from it. College, you know, this got worse. Um, I took some philosophy classes, Again, looking for, looking for those answers that a lot of us uh, come here for. And philosophy classes, you know, raise more questions than they do answers. Um, and you just spend a lot of time thinking, thinking, thinking. So it's interesting, you know, that we end up here. Um, My first exposure to Buddhism was in a Buddhist philosophy class in college. Um, I don't remember now why I picked it. I don't know. doesn't matter. Uh, I don't remember a lot about the class other than that the professor was really like this gorgeous Indian man with flowing hair and very expensive suits. <laughs> we thought he just kind of floated around the room. There was a cute girl in there that I liked a lot too, so that was part of the reason I think I liked the class. But my my big uh, paper, you know, the, the the final exam paper for that class was uh, was on biology and Buddhism, and I I've wondered many t looked many times. In my we, we moved around so much that you know I'm, I'm the paper got lost, and I would love to be able to find that paper now because I don't have any recollection of what I wrote it about. But 
but I was, you know, I was looking, I was looking in both realms essentially for understanding. Um, academically, I was always a, a math science kid. Um, I'm a very linear thinker. A goes to B goes to C. And, uh, and I hated poetry. Oh boy, I just could not do poetry. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I was looking for answers in science. Uh, and it made sense. Geometry, you know, just made so much sense. And then, you know, as I got to higher level math, then things got confusing again. <laughs> uh, that, that hit the limits of my uh, innate intelligence. Uh, same thing with, with physics. Um, biology, you know, seemed to make more sense. Or at least I believed that it made sense. And part of what's been fantastic about this journey uh, is, I've, is I've circled back to realizing that they don't have a clue. That this illusion of knowledge, you know, that I, I bought into uh, for years, that that science was going to answer all of this for me. You could explain it all with just the right mix of protons and electrons and neutrons. So yeah, so that's why I wrote this paper in Biology and Buddhism. I was trying to, trying to synthesize these two things to, to get understanding. But of course I didn't get it, that understanding. Um, and as we know, there's many theoretical physicists who are still searching and searching and searching. And that's what we're here doing, just in a very different way than I used to do. So throughout college, I got more, went from doubting God to agnostic to, you know, I remember that kind of the first time I said, I'm an atheist. I'm going to just, you know, put my foot down and, and say it. You know, I was just instead of hedging my bets and, you know, wanting to, be on both sides of the fence in case I was wrong. You know, I didn't want to leave that God and just in case, you know. But I finally did it. I finally said it, you know. I don't, I don't think I ever got as militant as, uh, was it Dawkins? Is that, he's the guy, right? Uh, I know I read his book, but uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't think I ever quite got that militant. But, uh, you know, and then, and then you go to medical school and you just don't have time for any of this stuff, right? I mean, it's just thinking about even though we spend our whole day dealing with life and death, you're, you're, you're not thinking about it in, in those terms. Uh, so yeah, you know, you're incredibly busy. You put these things to the side. Uh, first day of medical school, I, I met my future wife. You know, I fell in love that first year of medical school. So you're in love and you're trying to study. It's a good luck with that. Um, but yeah, so, so all these existential things got put on the back burner, um, except, for the, except for the understanding part, you know, wanting to understand. Um, obviously, there's, there's tons of explanations in medical school. And, uh, you know, I always, admire, I always admire the PhDs because they're immersed in the questions, you know, even though they're looking for answers, uh, medical school, you're kind of taking the shortcut and somebody's giving you the answers. Um, 
you know, we do a lot of memorization. There's a lot of thinking too, but not, not the kind of thinking that a PhD scientist or PhD of any kind is doing. Um, I didn't really have the patience to be a researcher. I've developed much more of that with 10 years of this practice. Searching, searching, searching. So yeah, finished medical school. Wife and I decide to settle down in Rochester, do our residency here. Start having kids about a year after residency ends, so you're starting to practice. Two, two young doctors, both career people, young kids. You know, we tried to limit our schedules, keep it from being too crazy, kind of working three quarters time. It's busy. Um, and so, yeah, again, not really spending a lot of time. Um, you know, the religion popped into my head again when we had kids. I'm thinking, well, I got to do something here. I got, I'm responsible now for, for the development of two beautiful daughters. So I started going back, taking them a little bit to a couple different churches around town, seeing if I could re-enter. Uh, even if even if I still didn't really believe in the God thing, there was you know there was a lot of benefits to churches. Even if you don't believe in the God thing, there's a lot of great messaging, great community, just the atmosphere that that feeling uh, of being in a sacred space uh, was was never left me it just it just popped into my head the uh one of one of the, one of the most sacred spaces i ever had church service in was in the woods of north carolina uh my parents sent me to a sleepaway camp when i was about 10 or 11 and it's funny i have i have you know a handful of memories from this camp because it was extremely traumatic. I was horribly, horribly homesick. Um, I did not want to be there. But I had fun doing the sports and archery and these things. And uh, it was, looking back on it now, I know that it was, there was a religious basis to the camp because uh, they, they took us to church um, every Sunday. We had a church service and they had they'd carved out uh, a little set of pews in, uh, in the woods. Uh, so we were, if you can imagine, you know, there's just benches like a normal church would have, you know, flat benches carved out of trees, nothing formal. And, you know, trees arching over you. It's in the mountains of North Carolina. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, so yeah, I, I, that, that, that atmosphere, you know, has always been with me. Um, So yeah, revisited it with uh, with the birth of the when the kids got a little bit older and start taking them a little bit. But you know, my wife is totally non-religious, um, so there wasn't wasn't really a lot of interest on her part in in pursuing this with our kids and kind of faded out a bit. So we, yeah, we were living our lives, working and taking care of the kids, and. Uh, 2009, I woke up in the middle of the night with the worst pain I've ever had. It was like somebody was stabbing me with a knife in my rib cage, my, my right side of my ribs by my liver. 
and uh, I, I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, no position was comfortable. I had to sit absolutely still um, or it would be like somebody stabbed me with a knife. I couldn't even breathe. I just did these teeny tiny breaths because it hurts so much to, to take a breath. And I ended up in the emergency room and they scanned me and blood tests and no, no real explanation and uh, went away. Um, a few months later, it came back. You know, no real explanation and, and uh, being the just push, 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 push personality that I was uh, and just, you know, get through, go on. I just moved on, didn't really pay much attention because I seemed to be pretty okay in between the episodes. You know, I was tired in between the episodes. They'd last a few days. Um, nobody could really, you know, I didn't, didn't get good explanations from the doctors I went to. And, uh, you know, I started laying down when I would come home from work and I just said, oh, that's normal. You know, you're working hard. You got two kids. Um, only in retrospect, you know, do I know that that wasn't normal. Um, so this goes on for almost two years. I go back and forth for a variety of tests. Uh, and yeah, no, no, no answers. Um, but I'm getting, you know, I'm getting worse. Uh, and when I, I, I think back at the, just the, 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 the powerful level of denial or something that goes on in the human psyche, because, you know, I was a very competitive squash player. I was playing in national tournaments and the last tournament I played in, uh, before the big day was, uh, in New York city. And, uh, I, I you know, you, you play four or five matches over the course of a weekend. So you play in the morning, you have a break, you play again in the afternoon. And I remember I was laying down on a couch trying to get some rest in between my matches because I was so tired. And yet I kept playing. That stubbornness might help me along the way, I suppose, with my Zen practice, but I think it has. So finally, I, you know, I went to the doctor, like, we got to do something. They, they concluded I was probably having some kind of spasms in my gallbladder uh, that was irritating my diaphragm and causing these pains. And uh, so, you know, I went to a good friend who's a surgeon. Okay, take your gallbladder out, June 11th, whatever day it was. So I go in, routine gallbladder surgery, you know, in and out. You go in, you're going to go home the same day. And... Uh, I wake up in the uh, recovery room with my wife, tears pouring out of her. Telling me that I had a liver full of cancer. And of course, you know, being a doctor I know of no disease, no cancer, that you have a dozen tumors in your liver that is not uniformly fatal.
So that's the short answer of how I got to Zen right there. Fortunately, the news, you know, fortunately there was stuff I didn't know and stuff that most oncologists don't know. You know, the first the first week or 10 days, of course, were, you know, well, more than that was pure hell. But the first 10 days, especially because, you know, we were just, what kind of cancer is this? They couldn't tell me, you know, they thought a gallbladder cancer, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, you know, none of those are good. And And fortunately, there was a very smart pathologist who I don't even know the person's name now that I think about it who determined I had this exceptionally rare type of sarcoma. It's a, it, sarcomas are cancers of like the connecting tissues. So even though the tumors are in the liver, it's not the liver cells are not cancers. It's the blood vessel in my liver that has the cancer. Um, and so, you know, we get this diagnosis and I go on the internet and okay, well, Average life expectancy is five years. Okay, well, that's better than what I thought. Um, and so now I start the search, right? Because no one, no one at University of Rochester had ever seen this cancer before. It's so rare. Roswell. Nobody in Buffalo at Roswell had ever seen it before. So I'm going all over the country. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I had the resources and the ability to get all the top-notch medical care, go to Boston, go to Pittsburgh. And the, the, the part of this story that I think is, you know, really relevant for, for me and Zen practice, not, of, not just, of course, the existential trauma, which is obvious, uh, but for me, this was about um, self-discovery, self-agency, uh, listening to experts, but not listening to experts, knowing when to listen, knowing when to ignore. And that's, that's, that's been applicable in my Zen practice, which I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so yeah, at Harvard, they wanted to, you know, put me on hardcore chemo. Um, I was nervous about this. I'd seen some things online about some softer stuff that, you know, might really work. Uh, and I found, uh, I found an oncologist at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, on, you know, in one of his research papers. You know, you have to do all this research yourself. You know, it, it's, 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 it's given me a whole new appreciation of being a doctor and how hard it is to be a patient. Uh, because you really, you have to advocate for yourself. The doctors are so busy that they do what they know. And uh, the guys at Harvard knew chemotherapy and that way the conversation ended. But I, I didn't want to just go with that because these are toxic, toxic things. So I emailed this Dr. Ravi in Houston I'm just getting choked up just thinking about how fortunate I am that this man had the compassion. Think about this. You get a random email from a patient in New York State. I have this cancer. I can remember exactly where I was. 
I was driving my daughter to Hochstein for a cello lesson, and the you know, the car the phone rings through the car, and it's it's Dr. Ravi, at eight o'clock at night on a Tuesday. Calling me and saying I want to talk to you. About your cancer. And, and I'm, I'm fully convinced if he had not called me, I would not be here right now because I would have done the chemo at, at Boston that I'm sure there's no way I would be still alive here 11 years later with that. Because it doesn't, it doesn't cure this disease. It, it just kind of keeps it at bay a little bit, but then it weakens your immune system. And Dr. Ravi had the wisdom to, to say, let's just do some gentle stuff and watch and wait and be patient. You don't, you don't have to do anything. Just sit there. <laughs> he didn't say that. That's my uh, little Zen tweak. So uh, I hadn't come to Zen yet. I was still, you know, desperately trying not to die. You know, obviously very depressed, you know, can't work. Um, and, and because, you know, and even Dr. Ravi says, I have no cure for you. Um, so, you know, I, I pull out. I was always, as far as most traditional doctors go, I was always quite open to, quote, alternative medicine. Um, so I had... I. I sought out acupuncture, um, and I remembered in medical school, there was an emergency room doctor, of all things, an emergency room, the last person you would think, an emergency room doctor who was a nice guy. Of course, he was Canadian. <laughs> and, and he used to do qigong on people in the emergency room, right? So on, on, in one room, he'd be doing CPR and giving epinephrine, and the other room, Somebody was having a migraine. He'd be he'd be giving them qigong. Um, and uh, and and you know he popped into my head. I hadn't seen him since in, since in in probably ten fifteen years since I was in training. But it, again, the way these puzzles come together is just it's just mind blowing. So I, I remembered him and uh, and I, I sought him out. And it turns out he he left traditional medicine completely and set up an acupuncture. Chinese herbal practice in Pittsburgh. So I started going to him and getting acupuncture three times a week and, and taking the herbs and and he had me doing he had me doing the, the kind of qigong exercises myself and that's you know started to get into the meditation realm and that you know he was having me visualize things and and I said, I, I guess I really need to learn more about meditation. And then again, here's, here's where all the weird, you know, the thousand coincidences that bring us here. So when I, when I was, you know, a seriously competitive squash player, you know, you get hurt. And a friend of mine sent me to a massage therapist and I'd hurt my back. And the massage therapist says, you really got to start doing yoga. I says, well, I don't know anything about yoga. Where do I go for yoga? And she said, go to this place called Open Sky. So this was, I don't know, five or seven years probably before my diagnosis. Uh, I, I went out back there uh, and went to Open Sky for, I don't know, a year and a half or so and did yoga. And I remember, uh, I remember Francois uh, 
would used to make jokes about the he was, he did it very lovingly you know the, the crazy people that sit and stare at the walls in the building next door <laughs> I, I just that went in one ear and out the other and uh, obviously it must have stayed in the brain because uh, when when I when I thought about where can I meditate that yoga said oh there's that Zen center next to the yoga place I'll call up the Zen center so yeah back injury massage therapist yoga teacher cancer here I am giving a talk <laughs> 11 years later <laughs> so really again in, in, in some ways and you've heard this from other people here uh, these these seeming catastrophes that happen to us um, are blessings. Truman, what's our time ending? 1020? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so, you know, when the catastrophes become blessings. Um, you know, I had no choice but to practice. You know, it's, it's hard. A lot of, you know, I see, I see new faces here I've never seen before. There's a lot of people that are, you know, coming to, coming to Zen out of the pandemic and, and trying it out. Uh, and it's hard. It's a difficult, it's a, it, you know, as we say on the websites, it's uh, simple but not easy. Um, but for me, I had no choice. I have a, I have a, uh, as uh, Deborah Zaretsky likes to say, the sword of Damocles, you know, hanging over me. Um, so yeah, um, the motivation, you know, was 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 forced upon me. Um, I mean, I suppose I could have turned to, to drugs or alcohol, but uh, fortunately, I didn't. Um, you know, I tried to escape, um, of course. But this this disease that I have is, you know, there is no escape. Whose book is that? The Wisdom of No Escape. Somebody's got a book of that. Um, Pema Chodron, right? Yeah. I think I read it. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Um, not to say I didn't fight it. A lot. I remember my early times coming here. I would wait almost until that third bell was struck to run to my seat so I could, <laughs> I could avoid sitting on that mat as long as possible. <laughs> because when, you, you know, when, when you've been given this diagnosis and then you're staring at a wall with nothing to distract you, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough not to think. <laughs> but I had no choice, so I persevered. And slowly, slowly, it got easier. The tumors kept growing. Obviously a source of anxiety. They grew for the first couple, three, let's see, yeah, three years after I was diagnosed, they were still growing. I'm still kind of declining. I would work part-time. Then I got some radiation treatment, which seemed to stop them from growing. So that, you know, it's given me some breathing room, made it a little bit easier um, to sit. 
that that maybe the end is not so near. So staying on the path. You know, I plugged along for those first bunch of years and uh, had some great experiences in Sashin, um, which reaffirmed my, my faith in the practice. Again, I was lucky that I had such a powerful motivating force to, to, to get me into the room because once I did, then you start having some experiences that, that reaff- reaffirm for you that this really does work. I have yet to be I have yet to find something that I have been taught here that is not true. So then the next catastrophe happened in my life, more the life of this other family than me. But just about four years ago, January, we had some new neighbors over for a dinner party. Welcome, welcome to the neighborhood. With their two, two daughters, one of them a young baby. And the next day, she was dead. And it turns out she ingested a pill that was in, on the floor of my house that my mother had dropped. An un- unspeakable tragedy. And any parent that's lost a child, which I have not, I can only imagine right, and the, know the suffering that they're going through. So this was a setback. The anxiety for me, you know, when this was discovered, there was a big police investigation. Our house was searched. We had to get a lawyer. It's in the newspaper. This is the reason I mentioned as a kid that I never got in trouble. I was so afraid of getting into trouble as a kid. I don't know why, but I was. Now this. The anxiety was unbearable. not sleeping for, you know, weeks at a time led me to, you know, I, I had, despite the cancer diagnosis, I had never taken any anxiety medicine, any antidepressants. Zen was my medicine. Um, and here I had to take something. And the first dose of one of these SSRIs that I took, 15 hours later, I was acutely suicidal. We stopped that medicine, obviously. But, but the two months of sleep depression, sleep, sleep de- deprivation and anxiety and, and just the existential angst of the loss and the suffering of our neighbors on top of my ongoing illness, I just spiraled down into this horrible, horrible depression. 
And again, no medicines didn't really help. I went to the psychiatrists, therapists, put on three different, and I was on three different antidepressants at the same time, and is still suicidal. I never did it. I never acted on it. But I had a, I had a hole in my chest, right here, center of my, center of my chest that I never had my entire life. I described it like a black hole. Just all joy, all every, just sucked, sucked into my chest. So now I was on a new search. How do I, how do I, how do I deal with this? And this is, this is where staying on the path really hit home for me because uh, Zen just wasn't, I had a crisis of faith. I'm like, I've been meditating hard for how, seven years before this happened. And, and it was like, it felt useless. It felt like the practice had completely abandoned me. Total panic, mental health, never worse. I started shopping around for, went to the Tibetans for a bit. I never left here completely, but I was shopping around for other practices. I couldn't just sit and stare at that wall. I needed guided meditations. I wanted something to help me. I did gratitude meditations. I wrote gratitude lists. I, you know, did all the things. And they were, it was just, everything was an empty, empty exercise. All of them were intellectual exercises. So I had to search again on my own. I found psychedelic psychotherapy, did a different number of treatments there. I kept doing Zen. I did other stuff too, a lot of the guided stuff. I even sat through the Sashins, the, the virtual Sashins during the pandemic. Right? So, yeah, talk about a bad timing, right? You're already suicidal and then the pandemic hits. My daughter, last daughter went off to college. We had empty nest, pandemic. It was rough, really rough. So sitting in Sashin by myself in my walkout apartment in my parents' house I'd go to, I could have the whole place to myself this hole in my chest and I, I, I just I hated Zen at that time I don't know why I kept doing it I just did I, I guess I had no choice I don't know what else to say I just kept doing it and I got angry I was so angry Roshi, how can you let me sit here with this hole in my chest not wanting to live? This can't be right. And the reason I mentioned my obedience and my non-rebelliousness as a kid was my, my, my next act of rebellion was, was to stop sitting every day. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, whoa, crazy. But, you know, you, you hear the message, sit every day, sit every day, sit every day. And I did. I was obedient. I did. I sat every day for like seven, eight years. I'm like, I have a hole in my chest. I do not want to live. 
this cannot be good for me to sit here and think about this. Of course it's not. Roshi's not telling me to think about it. Of course he's telling me not to think about it. Do do your practice. So I finally, you know, gave him the virtual finger and stopped sitting. Well, that lasted about, I don't know, a week. (laughs) Two weeks, maybe. And then I was back there. But just doing it made a difference. You know, just just making the decision that I was going to take charge of my practice. And that's, 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 you know, what I've been learning about this combination of listen to experts and listen to yourself. I had to listen to myself when it came to my medical care, but at the same time, you know the old saying, a, a doctor who treats himself as a fool for a patient. Um, so yeah. Same thing in my Zen practice. Listen to the experts. Listen to myself. So I persevered, persevered, resilience, just keep sitting, keep sitting. Ketamine seemed to be the bomb for me. That kind of, you know. It's impossible to know what got me through all this. I, 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 I will certainly say that sitting through all of that and directly experiencing a hole in my chest I completely believe that it did help me get through it. We say this all the time, you know, the only way out is through. You can't avoid it. All I wanted to do was avoid it, but you can't. So so some combination of ketamine and uh, all those sashin, it improved. And... uh, I've been off all antidepressants for a year and a half. My mental health has never been better. And Sashin, about 15 months ago, You know, I'm such a planner and the, the linear person that I, you know, it's, it's so hard for me not to go into Sashin with expectations. And we all struggle with this to an extent. But every time something good happens in Sashin, it's out of the blue and it's unplanned. And I'm in that November Sashin and I'm just struggling. And even, even the last, this last Rohatsu, I, every Sashin, I still hate it at some times and I'm never doing this again I can't do that I'm not coming back here what the why am I here I mean how many have I been to and I still do this so I was I was in one of these temper tantrums uh, in this November Sashin and uh, and I'm like why am I struggling so much just relax (laughs) and and I I took some relaxation breaths that I you know, how many times have I done that in 10 years of practice? But there was something different about these that, that I tell people it, it changed my DNA. It was, that, it was that profound. And the, the, the next thing that followed was stop beating yourself up. I had been so hard on myself my whole life.
And I'm not going to say it's been 100% cured. I still have my moments. But it was transformative. And it may not be, you know, uh, it may not be, is not a Kensho type experience. But for me, enlightenment, I saw things about myself. That's enlightenment to me. And my burden, my burden is lighter. And what more can you ask for? than a lighter burden with this life that we all live. And I know you all have burdens too. Anybody, anybody here could come up here and give a talk like this. So I'm going to end uh, <laughs> with some poetry. <laughs> <laughs> because now I like questions more than answers. And that's another thing that's changed with 10 years of this practice. So I got to go with Rumi, of course. Out beyond right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I will meet you all there. Stop now and take questions. So I'm sure Jisai has the uh, this mic on. So just a couple things about um, so Jonathan. Uh, when someone in here asks the question, repeat the question so people online can hear it. And for people online, if you want to make a comment or ask a question. Uh, put it in the chat box, send it to everyone. I've got a device here, I can, I can read it out. Uh, and with that, Dr. Robbie, well, I'm so glad he was there, and 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 for you being just talking to yourself, and we're all you, just a, yes, sensitive. Thank you. Yeah. There's no. something in there. Yeah. Has it come out the other side yet? <laughs> 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 
story about um, the trauma when you were born. Um, like, do you, how, how, is that something that came into your consciousness when the tragedy happened in your house? Or is that something that you already thought about before? No. I, Oh yes, thanks, Truman. Um, the the question from Rachel was the uh, my the birth trauma with the cord around my neck. Uh, is that something that I had thought about before? Did that just come to me with the um, the death of the baby at the house? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I. I I mean, time-wise, it didn't come to me until after the baby had died, but I, I don't know that it was directly related. Um, obviously, you know, uh, <laughs> the things that are buried deep in our subconscious uh, are powerful. Uh, I'll... At the risk of putting everyone into tears right before we leave, I'll I'll relate a different version of that that did relate to Maisie. During one of my psychedelic psychotherapy sessions, you know, you pre you prepare, you set an intention, and there's this, you know, you make the setting for uh, for what you want to achieve. And I I had put I had put photos on the wall of me because I, again, being the planner that I am and, and trying to make something happen, I had put, I was going to regress myself psychologically and go back in time. So I had photos of me, college, high school, middle school, elementary school, me as a baby. Then I had Photos of both sets of parents. Like I did like a family tree on the wall. Grandparents. I had photos of everybody back as far as I could go. And the psychedelic session was going horribly. It was awful. And I went to the therapist. I'm like, I can't, I can't settle down. This isn't working. I was having another temper tantrum, like a Sashin one. And I went to the photos, and I started taking down the photos. This is not working. Take down the photo of me in college, me in high school, me in my sailor outfit. 
I think that to me is a nine month old baby. I just lost it. I had, it was not in my, I really had not been thinking about her in a long time. And it was there. And I, I cried. Grief that I've never experienced in my entire life. I felt that I was grieving for every parent that had ever lost a child in all of eternity. And again, it was another one of these things where what you think is a horrible experience turns out to be that that was that was what I needed to heal that loss and that it really resolved it so yeah was the birth trauma part of that I don't know that was a lot more than you asked <laughs> seems to me in your talk that it wasn't any one thing. I mean, we talk about cause and effect. There should be causes and effects, I think, because there's so much. Some comes together, some of it falls apart. You know, this is, I guess this is what I'm experiencing in this practice, actually. And, uh, and also, I'm even questioning cause and effect. I mean, <laughs> That doesn't really exist, but at any rate, uh, the, the, the way your talk went is just all these confluences coming together. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I, you know, yeah, it's a lot of pain. It's dukkha. You know, damn it. <laughs> but we, we, you know, I've gone through a lot of some of that stuff. I remember one session I cried. Oh, oh gosh, that was memories. Take a breath. I cried for a whole round. Even through kidhood. And afterwards I felt like a thousand pounds. Just gone. Yeah. More than that. So but there's still a lot of grief in me. So I think that's the whole what it is is what it is, you know. Be with it as best I can. Okay, uh, we'll have plenty of opportunities to talk to Jonathan after. Give him a hug if he needs one, <laughs> <laughs> if we need one, and that will recite the four vowels. <coughs>